ultimately, um, the researchers fade into the backdrop. Constrained by their dependence on RNG funding and by the legislative environment, their influences as actors waned. So, you know, we're still at this or very early stages. We're six months in. And at this moment, you know, you still have like the good vibes of academia and you still have idealists who are founders, but governments are more powerful <laughs> than, um, uh, th th than researchers. And if if AI really hits in the way that some people think it will, these decisions very, you know, ultimately are going to be out of the hands of the of the original inventors. So savor this moment um, when we still have the AI researchers being the ones who are sort of driving and shaping the discussion, because the, the window may not be open for, for much longer. AI, it's more than open AI <laughs> to discuss the um, wide and wonderful world of uh sort of startups and established firms and whatever is going to come next from a sort of market perspective, which will then, you know, inevitably flow into government and policymaking. I have on to discuss Matthew Lindley, the author of the fantastic new supervised newsletter, which you can find at supervised.news, where he covers everything there is to be covered about AI and, and startups. Also co-hosting today is Danny Crichton, uh, returning to China Talk as the head of editorial at Lux Capital. Let's jump in with Hugging Face, Matt. What is this company and why is it important? Um, first off, it's existed since well before ChatGPT. Um, but uh, today it's, you know, they started off trying to be what is kind of colloquially referred to as the GitHub of AI. GitHub is where programmers basically manage their code. Uh, so so in, if GitHub is where you're managing your code, Hugging Face is where you would manage machine learning models. Um, that's not just large language models, although obviously there are a ton of them there. Um, you know, there's, there are, it is a very, very deep rabbit hole that you could spend hours and hours and hours going through what's on there. Um, but they also have a variety of tools on top of it. Uh, so you can, you know, their, their biggest tool is an API or a package called Transformers that you use to deploy and work with those same machine learning models, uh, really straight. It's really straightforward for programmers. Um, I can use it, um, which is probably saying something because in terms of like my level of technical ability, um, and it's, uh, so it's a $2 billion company, uh, Lux is an investor, obviously, but so is Sequoia Capital, a lot of big names that you, um, you see, uh, in it and it's, it's kind of become synonymous with the open source community and machine learning. Um, so they, you know, in the same way that uh, some of these bigger open source communities are managed by the companies that uh, manage those, the software for it. So there's a one called DBT Labs, for example, that manages an open source tool called DBT. Uh, Hugging Face has kind of like fallen into being the steward for uh, the community around open source machine learning models. Um, that, of course, is all byproduct of the fact that, like, in the last six months, we all just got hit in the face with a wiffle bat about how, about how, like, you could actually use these machine learning models, these, these large language models to do all these crazy things. Um, but, but it's become probably one of the most important startups in artificial intelligence because that's just where a lot of these models are being stored, being updated, being deployed. And that's where you kind of that's where you can go and get them and use them yourself. You know, I, I think the metaphor of GitHub works well. The difference between a lot of computer code and, and GitHub was, you know, GitHub was a storage place where you put your code. You can copy the code. You can use it if it's open source. Um, people can borrow it, etc. When it comes to AI, it's not just code. You actually have to run these models. You have to train them. You have to get them up to speed. You have to um, operate them. And that's a whole different level of service. And so I think one of the things that Hugging Face really did is not just be a repository for code, it's also the community to understand that code, it's also the platform to run it. Uh, and running AI models is something that's actually been extremely hard, particularly for the most complicated models. And so having kind of pre-built recipes, having the best practices already built in, I think really helped Hugging Face to succeed over the last couple of years. And it's important to note that they've been around, I think, what, about five years now. And so, you know, they predate this huge, you know, kind of revolution. Yeah. They were there when the academics were there. And now as it has expanded, they've also helped to popularize the field as well. So are they, uh, you know, GitHub famously um, is the one website that, that the Chinese government cannot block um, because it is so <laughs> central to um, uh, developers in China that like, you know, this is now the place where you like host, you know, dissident 
uh, I remember that the famous one was um, uh, all the reporting about uh, COVID that got censored um, in China was uploaded to GitHub. I'm curious, you know, is Hugging Face does how does it have a a um, uh, um, you know does it uh, like like uh, OpenAI's uh, APIs famously are like you know locked out of um, uh, Chinese users? Is does has Hugging Face like do they have a policy on this at this point? Like, what's the what's the sort of global um, and and China specific reach of the platform? I was gonna say I I literally don't know. I will say um, similar to GitHub, as you've identified, it has become the repository, right? And so if you're in the AI community, um, you are on Hugging Face. Like, there's just no way to avoid it. Um, and because it's sort of a network effect, and as you have more and more researchers and more and more of the engineers on board, um, everyone else has to join as well. So. Um, I don't know it's China policy or or even whether it's accessible, but um, I imagine it falls into the same trap of, of GitHub for the Chinese regulators, where um, I think they would love to control everything on the web, but there are just some things that they cannot if they want to have access to the cutting edge and state-of-the-art technologies that are available. Yeah, and I think the other, I mean, you mentioned researchers, but uh, the one of the big things is obviously every machine learning hobbyist on the planet is using Hugging Face, it's, using Hugging Face in some way or another. And these these people with tons of time to kill and and a lot of curiosity are honestly the ones that generally figure out the killer use cases for the internet um and that locking something like that out has a lot of downstream detrimental effects um in the same way that like locking github out had locking something like github out has a lot of downstream detrimental effects because it's become so essential in the machine learning community if you want to be moving the industry forward in any way whatsoever, either from a commercial or open source or, you know, just for funsies, you, you have to be using Hugging Face. So Matt, one of the sort of incredible things about Hugging Face and like incredible things about AI development in general is like the fact that there are open source models out there that are almost as good as, um, you know, as what uh, Google and, and OpenAI have been um, able to develop. You know, First, like, how is that even possible? Um, and then maybe maybe talk also about like whether this is something that's like sustainable or inevitable, or you know what what the degrees of uncertainty are on on you know to what extent open source will be able to continue to compete with the big boys. Yeah. So uh, as good is is probably one of the most frustratingly subjective uh, subjects in AI right now because everyone has a different definition of what as good means like you can go like oh mmlu score or you're gonna this is outperforms chat gpt by 105 percent or whatever it's like benchmarks are screwed up um to begin with right um but the i think that where a lot of innovation is happening in open source is just making these things available for anyone to make really specific adjustments for their use cases so for example if i'm I don't know, a legal firm or something like that. I'm like, ooh, AI. But I mean, obviously, I, I can't use something like a, or it may be a situation where I can't use a GPT-4. Um, is there a way that I could use a model that generally is good at reading documents and train it on my specific legal domain and specifically the customers that I work with, uh, the problems that they've faced in order to create something that is specifically tuned for me? You know, another example that I heard recently was um, someone was using a model for onboarding where they would uh, take all this data that they had stored in Confluence, take all this data that they had stored from their HR departments, um, build a pocket LLM with that through a, through a technique called fine tuning. And then when someone joins, they get a kind of personalized assistant to tell them like how the company works and show them around and you know who to talk to for what build out this kind of mental map um and so the these models that obviously they have you know tons of issues with accuracy and stuff like that um i mean even open ai's model has has issues with accuracy in a lot of these a lot of these ways um but the 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 benefit of open source is that they're it's just very it's so flexible and so easy to customize uh the benchmarks things is a completely different topic that another rabbit hole that is is worth going down at some point, um, but the but the but the the value is that because these models aren't you know 1.6 trillion parameters or whatever the ensemble OpenAI has for GPT-4, um, they're small enough that you can train them very quickly and train them very effectively and cheaply uh, to build these customized use cases like a you know personal onboarding assistant um, or you know a 
document reader for my specific kinds of documents. Um, a lot of that is thanks to Facebook's work on Llama, but uh, the, there's a whole offshoot of these other open source models that satisfy different conditions like that. I think like the consensus, like most impressive open source model has been what Facebook's done by like, I guess, sort of leaking Which open Llama. source. Uh, <laughs> What, what, um, uh, you know, what are, what are they thinking with that? And, and sort of, does it, is it going to end up taking, you know, giant companies deciding to support open source to make sure that open source is, is able to, um, uh, still, um, uh, stay, stay on board? Yeah. So Llama, the Llama family of models that they've released, um, are not commercially available uh they're for you know that's why i say open source they're for research purposes um everyone's played with it at this point um you know whether uh in some form or another and a lot of the a lot of the other open source models just take the learnings from llama and apply them to new methodologies and new data sets and things like that um you know they've had a commercial version on the roadmap for god knows how long at this point um like the you know people i talked to expected it to come out in may and then they expected it to come out in june but there's a lot of you know challenges that go into uh putting out a model that can be used for commercial purposes um especially from a company like meta where they're under an enormous amount of scrutiny for everything except for threads apparently but uh every but for everything else um <laughs> uh but uh, but they they pioneered a lot of interesting techniques uh, in terms of cramming a lot of power into models that require less intensive compute resources. So they can be made faster. They can be made for uh, in a cheaper way. Um, they can be iterated on and adjusted very quickly. Um, what Facebook inevitably does, Meta inevitably does, is still kind of an open question i think um because but they have a long history of being really successful in open source particularly with uh a software they use they release called pytorch which is what pretty much powers all ai tools uh at this point um you know i don't want to say in existence because you know tensor google's version tensorflow obviously is still in place in a lot of different uh companies and products uh, but PyTorch has never been really monetized, right? It's it's sort of just like out there uh, that and and anyone can can kind of use it. And so they could go in a lot of different directions. The benefit of of you know being the 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 source of truth for for these you know pocket LLMs with something like Llama is you get to kind of have a lot of influence in the direction of the way that community develops you don't have control over it per se because they could just like offshoot it fork it and do whatever they want with it but you can influence mm. it pretty pretty directly so it's still it's still up for grabs i think uh for for meta um uh, and it, we'll see we'll have to see what happens when they release their first commercially available um model because there is a, a commercially available model competitive with llama now called falcon um that came out uh whatever what was that five weeks ago six weeks ago something like that you can check my work and, and yell at me later danny um but um but that is commercially available and so now it's like llama faces competition but like is that really made us that is point dot 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 right so yeah. um so anyone can anyone can build these using the same methodologies and techniques that that uh meta deployed for for llama um it, it's just a question of like what data that they have access to yeah. So let's let's sort of like broaden out the question about o open source. Um, you know, there, there's been some uh, a little bit of discussion over the past few few months about this idea of like algorithmic export controls, um, which seem to me to be like pretty difficult um, to do in general. Uh, you know, even if the companies are even if it's just companies developing them, developing them privately, but like nigh impossible if things are, are, are open source. Uh, Danny, do you have um, uh do you have some you have some takes on 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 this sort of applying this sort of like control framework to uh, to software? Yeah, I mean it's always a balance in in code, right? You you have the open source model, which is designed for easy distribution, try to get the code into everyone's hands, allow every engineer to remix and rebuild, um, and that's created the foundation of the modern web, which is built on open systems, open protocols, open networks, um, export controls, the DC mindset, 
is basically the polar opposite. It's the antipode. Um, people want control. Only some people get the code. Others do not. It's proprietary. It's um, you know dominated by a few players. And um, it's very antithetical to the ethos that most computer scientists have because almost every computer scientist relies on open source code every single day to do their job. And so I, I think there's always been a fundamental tension between this kind of Silicon Valley open ethos versus this sort of export controls. Only some countries get the best code, others don't, um, which, which in some fundamental way, well, at least for a lot of Silicon Valley folks who I hang out with, um, no one understands how that even works because how do you kind of freely distribute to half the world but not the other half? Yeah, I mean, I think everyone's seen that comic of where like you have the, the giant stack of books that's all like software that reaches some product. And then there's like a Jenga block holding up the other side of it. That's like some open source software maintained <laughs> maintained right. by a guy in Montana, maintained by one person in Montana, um, where um, I think OpenAI ran into this issue. I think it was a Redis bug, if I remember correctly, where just GBT just fell apart because of a bug and an open source because like they just that that's what everyone uses, right? Yeah, well, I mean, it, going all the way back to Heartbleed, if you remember the bug from uh, OpenSSL. We're dating ourselves. You know, oh, da no. I, I know, I know. <laughs> it's my first time I, I learned about this, but it was like OpenSSL runs every single encrypted transaction on the web. Every e-commerce company relies on it. It's universal. And there was one guy, literally mm -hmm. a guy, whose job it was to maintain this library. And when he didn't show up to work, so to speak, for free to help the web out, um, all e-commerce transactions kind of, you know, slowed to a crawl. And what ended up happening was Google kind of funded it and a couple other companies kind of came together and was like, maybe we should have someone who runs this critical infrastructure doing this full time. And so, you know, I, I think it's interesting because I see kind of like a hydra in DC. You have this kind of view that certain technology shouldn't be exported. But then at the same time, you have this encouragement around open RAN in, in cell networks um, where you're trying to open up and de- uh, you know, take the proprietary technologies out of certain networks. So I, I just don't know. I mean, that's always the question in DC, I feel like, is is there's just multiple philosophies all conflicting and no one understands what's going on. Yeah, although yeah, I mean, to be clear, one area of influence DC can have over that is is exports for hardware, right? So then there's a very specific kind of hardware that enables all of these technologies in the first place um, run by one and a half companies uh, in, the, in the US. Um, and uh, and so that is you know that is a that is a, a a point that they can constrict if they if they really want to um, in order to sort of like exert influence over over the like global AI development universe. Yeah, um, done a lot of shows about hardware export controls. Maybe we'll say that we'll say that one for another, uh, uh, for another time. Um, let's um uh, let's keep going down our um. Uh, you know our alphabet soup of uh, of of, of uh, AI players. Um, Databricks and Snowflake. What do they do? Uh, if you map out this, you know the the thirty year plan, and it follows exactly the route that Snowflake and Databricks um, want. They they are a layer that abstracts out all the complicated stuff that uh, is required to manage data in the cloud, uh, and the the way that the, the way that they became very popular was just because uh, instead of having to dig deep into like how AWS works, which is really really complicated, like as anyone who's ever looked at an AWS dashboard once has been terrified. I think the first time they ever look at it um, by by kind of lifting that layer, like putting like a wrapper on top of it that's very easy to interface. That you know someone who's just an analyst who knows SQL really well. Uh, they don't need to understand the the intricacies of of pipelines and data data management. They could just use it use something like a Snowflake to to access it. Snowflake it makes it really easy to just like put this wrapper on top of it. In the same way that you could say that a programming language like C plus plus is a wrapper for assembly, right? And Python is a wrapper for C plus plus in a lot of ways. And so these things are just kind of like it puts a layer that makes things simple. And so Snowflake and Databricks like they're 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 good at different things like data snowflake is really good for analytics which is basically how do i determine interesting information from the data that i have about my customers like are they churning are they am i losing them why am i losing them how am i acquiring databricks has very much been focused on data science so it's like how can i create a model that helps me predict whether or not this customer will go away so you can sort of say like data science very data science focused oriented on 
predicting future analytics oriented on driving insights from the past. Um, they are, they kind of do this thing where they go back and forth into each other's turf, um, where it's like, you know, Snowflake will want to get into machine learning and then back off a little bit and Databricks will want to get into analytics and then back off a little bit and then do, you know, go, go back and forth. Um, but now they've, they've sort of taken this, this, these differing approaches, which are both, you know, technically accurate interpretations of how machine learning will work, um, setting aside stuff like OpenAI and things like that. Um, in that Databricks is you come to Databricks and I say, I want to create a chatbot that helps me uh, onboard a new employee, uh, for example, or something like that. Um, and I have a very specific way of doing it. Maybe I'm like a tightly regulated company and I can't just like pull a model off the shelf and, and make some tweaks to it or something like that. So I take all of the data that I have, apply the same techniques or, or um, uh, capabilities that have gone into creating a chat GPT or a llama and from there build a model from scratch that ends up uh, powered by Databricks where then I just send a link, a Databricks link effectively to this new employee that's coming in and they get access to a chatbot uh, from the top to the bottom, right? So they have the data, they manage the construction of the model, they manage the deployment of the model, they manage how to train it so on and so forth. Snowflake has all of your company data in the first place. Um, and they, they've sort of taken this approach where they want to be the home for, you can pull a model in that's popular and make adjustments on with it on your data and then serve it through a tool that we have called Streamlit or a variety of like other companies that we work with uh, powered on Snowflake. So we're, you're still in your little pocket uh, universe within within our our organization. So um, they're differing opinions on the way that these machine learning models are going to be inevitably inevitably deployed. They're both technically accurate. Um, you could say that probably like Snowflake in the short term, that approach makes more sense. Um, whereas Databricks's viewpoint may be a little bit more long term. I think. Um, or like the time horizon for, for what it wants to accomplish might be a little bit longer term in that, you know, maybe they want to be a new interpretation of AWS or something like that. Um, but the two companies are, are essentially shepherding how we're going to be deploying a lot of these open source or local, um, mod local hyper specialized models again this is setting aside all the apis um and uh from open ai and anthropic and inflection yeah. and coherent so let's guys let, let's talk about that the sort of the the comparison there because you know multiple times in your in your um uh newsletter you said like basically everyone i know who has who is using um uh sort of new the, this new generation of models in their work is either using uh, uh gbg 3.5 or yeah. gbg 4 and yeah. Um, you know, I'm curious, like, do you have a take, Matt, on if we're looking at just one, like a world in which one model rules them all or um, you're, you're going to end up having to do these like, you know, th there'll be like 50 things on the shelf and you'll have to like mix and match and what have you like how and, and, and maybe also like how does the world look different um, for one versus the other? Everyone has a different opinion about everything and all of them are, you know, 35 percent correct. I think, uh, in some fashion or another, <laughs> but, um, the, the thing that, so these models have been around for a while, right. Or like language models have been around for a while. The thing, what OpenAI did, which was, was quite, um, incredible was the user experience they built around it. Um, cause no one had ever seen something like chat GPT, chat GPT was technically possible, uh, in some ways, right. Maybe not at the level of sophistication of, of you know, GPT 3.5, which is what powers chat, chat GPT. Um, but no one had really kind of like brought it together and made it something that was that accessible. And the actual, you know, using GPT in a tool uh, personally is is just as easy. It's literally like a few lines of code. Like I literally did it for some text extraction two days ago. 
uh, it took less than 10 minutes to to put it all together. Uh, and so it is it is just it is they've they've crafted a, a ridiculously good user experience. And there's obviously a lot of companies that are chasing that same that same approach. The flip side of that is you don't own anything. So if I, you know, fine tune uh, using the the term, like if I make adjustments to GPT-4 to specialize for my case, I, I don't necessarily like own that new model. I can't pull it down and say, I want to save it on my server or something along those lines. Like OpenAI owns it. And when they make adjustments, even sometimes small adjustments, it can break things, um, which mm. is true for any software, right? It's true for any software run by a company, like small adjustments can just totally break deployments entirely. So, uh, so Open so relying on an API like OpenAI or, you know, if Anthropic and the rest of them are successful, um, uh, an API for a Claude is Anthropic's version, um, runs with, the, comes with the risks of, of, you know, any relying on any other software run by any company. It's like, it just break it at any point um, because I don't have a specific, and these models are in particular actually quite sensitive to changes. Um, so, you know, you see a lot of chat bots like, you know, I have a personal assistant and, and you know, OpenAI made an update and now she acts totally differently. The benefit with open source is you own the model, right? So you can make changes to it and I get to save all my changes. I get to hold on to it. So, you know, if OpenAI updates something, it doesn't break it because I'm the one that controls whether or not it gets updated and how how it gets updated. Again, they're really differing interpretations of the way AI should be put as a product into use cases, consumer or enterprise, um, both can be correct at the same time in really specific ways. So the framing of, I think the framing is really challenging um, here and that, you know, is like, oh, does open source win or does closed source win? Well, like there are a lot of industries where there is a closed and open source yeah. uh, version version available. Um, and what, what makes OpenAI really successful is just is how ridiculously easy it is to use and the use cases for ai we're still figuring it out um and like uh, you know like we said earlier or like i said earlier um it's often like the bored hobbyists that are going to figure out the the crazy cool use cases for for all this stuff uh and they're going to be they have access to you know open source but they also have access to apis and so it's like so we're we're still figuring out like what what goes with what uh, Danny, anything on that? I think the key piece I would add is is just it's evolving, right? So to, to follow up on the last comment here about six months, um, you know, AI has been around decades, right? It really comes out of the 60s. Uh, the latest generation really came out of the last seven to eight years with deep learning um, and then transformers and a bunch of other technologies that have enabled this current uh, generation of technologies. But, um, you know, the revolution is in, you know, is in progress, right? It's happening right now. And so um, not only do we not know the extent of the different products that are even possible yet, right? We're still inventing the intellectual technologies that are going to empower AI. Um, it gets really hard when you try to translate that change that's happening in real time with, okay, well, exactly what companies are going to be structured? How are we going to have AI delivered to us? Who's going to actually implement it? Um, it's a complete open question. So for instance, let me give you a couple yeah. of, of different approaches. You could imagine a really compact model. We were talking about Llama earlier uh, that is installed by Apple on my iPhone. Um, that processes all AI requests on device, which mm. means that I have privacy, I have control, nothing's getting sent to another company. Um, if it's the ethos of Apple, uh, you can imagine a um, kind of monopolist, a, a search engine, let's say, who owns the model, has the biggest model in the world, no one else can compete with it. Um, they don't release any of the details. Everything's impossible to understand, uh, but it works really, really well and no one really cares and we all use it and it's free and advertising somehow supports it. Um, and then there's a bunch of enterprise use cases from, um, I want to make my HR software better. It has to follow certain uh, laws around private information. And so maybe it's hosted on-prem, but it's going to be used as a service company. And so someone's going to implement that for me. Um, that's very common. Uh, and I believe Databricks and Snowflake sort of fall into that category at times um, as well. Um, you could also imagine like, I'm a company has no engineers whatsoever on staff. Like, please figure out everything for me and just deliver me a product that works. Um, think law firms processing legal data. Um, they're not going to have a whole IT staff who have a bunch of PhDs with legal, you know, natural language processing. And so they're going to need services that come to them and say, hey, you know, do this. We're going to make sure your data is private and secure and following, you know, bar standards. 
um, but we have no way of implementing it. So I think the range is going to be hugely diverse. It's underway. The revolution is happening. It's changing in real time. So there are no answers. No one has a, a good point. I, I'd end with a quote from Ben Evans, who had a great piece on this this week. Ben Evans is a well-known tech analyst for the last 10 years, uh, but he was exploring the subject. And, and his quote was um, that uh, there's a huge difference between an amazing demo of a transformative technology and something that a big, complicated company holding other people's business can use. Yeah, and I think like a lot of people say like, "Oh, iPhone moment," right? Um, which the analogy is 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 pretty good. Uh, you know, when the iPhone came out, like, what were the what did we end up with killer use cases? Like Candy Crush. Well, you probably could have predicted that <laughs> that games we we probably could have predicted that that games would be successful, but like. You know, broadcasting my my badass Milfoy to the world. Um, like, did could we have like figured like that was that was going to be a natural outcome of this? Like, not necessarily because the cameras on them sucked, and like we we didn't have this idea of how network effects were going to work. And APIs were brand new at the time. Uh, you know, at the same time that the iPhone was coming out, so we didn't really know. We didn't really understand the consequences. Or like, my phone is a key for everything, including my passwords. Not necessarily, right? Apple Pay. When the iPhone was released, there was no App Store. It did three things. It yep. made phone calls. You could do text messages. There was an iMessages. You could only text. Um, and you could browse the web, and a pretty bad version of the web with the original Safari browser. And and from that became Uber and Facebook and Instagram and Apple Pay and every financial product and mobile banking. And so, you know, again, we're just at the cusp. You know, iPhone was 07. The App Store, I believe, is 09. Uh, a yep. lot of these apps come out in 2010 to 2012. So, you know, give it a couple of years and we're going to see just the huge vistas opening up before us. So speaking of uh, awesome demos, which aren't products yet, agents. Uh, Matt, what are those? And uh, what's the... Um, uh, uh, I mean, who knows how it's going to play out, but what's the what's the optimistic future of it, what? It, uh, it's very different from the Langley version of agents. <laughs> uh. <laughs> yeah, so the notion of an agent um, is is you know using uh, things like a large language model to to orchestrate something to act on my behalf to accomplish some arbitrary task. You know, that ranges from the the, the hustle GPT folks on Twitter being like, create a business for me, but selling t-shirts uh, and I, how I generated $15,000 in revenue in two and a half seconds using AutoGPT um, all the way to what are some discoveries I can make through the use of agents, like actual real scientific discoveries by allowing it to iter iterate. You know, you can, you can, using agents, you can simulate two professors yelling at each other over a problem, right? Um, if you really, if you really wanted to. And, and it's this way of, of, of simulating something to, to act on on your behalf um you know there is a there is an open source speaking of open source again there is an open source tool out there called auto gpt which again is easy enough to use that someone as dumb as i as i am able to figure it out right and uh and and essentially says like hey like can i you know execute this type of code to read this website to look whether or not a playstation 5 is available would be would have been great if we had this a year ago right um but uh to 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 just do these things on my behalf and you know auto gpt is is you can sort of have it in check or you can let it run autonomously which i, I don't advise um obviously um uh because there's a lot of problems that uh, not like arbitrary code excuse me there's a lot of problems because it like runs into a lot of walls and tends to to fall off the rails pretty fast um but uh but but the the idea of agents is actually kind of a natural consequence of uh, not necessarily just a, the the limitations of, of GPT four, but like this this explosion of of different highly specialized language models, where it's like this model is actually good for this specific thing, and this model is good for this specific thing. Um, what if I could use them both, and how can I use them both? I I construct this entity to basically say like use this for that, and use this one for that, and to accomplish this task, where I, the end result is an email to Danny Crichton reminding him that. Uh, you know, we have a podcast coming up in uh, a, a couple of days or something along those lines um, to just do the, to do do this on my behalf. That's the extreme bull case is like that you have something that you just press a button and it orchestrates all this stuff for you. There's a lot of complicated pieces there happening in between. Um, the biggest one of which is that these models hallucinate, which is a terrible term. We need a new term for it, I think. Uh, uh, but they they'll sort of like arbitrarily grab incorrect information, which is a byproduct, the way this data is stored, and and managed, 
um, and the techniques used to sort of retrieve that data. Um, and so like one error here can turn into three errors here, which is five errors here, which is what's the next one of the Fibonacci sequence nine, right? Uh, whatever, right? Um, I got that one, one wrong right away, but uh, they, they can kind of multiply down, multiply down the line um, and get worse and worse and worse. And so like agents, it's a very, very early concept uh, as, you know, maybe two, three months old ish. Right. Um, it's the fastest growing open source project of all time, as far as I understand. Um, uh, and uh, the community is very lively uh, in the discords. Um, so that's another that's another good example of like a very community, you know, community driven product that's like created a lot of really interesting um, use cases. But the, but there's there's a ton of other things happening. There's a startup called Generally Intelligent, I think, is is looking at using agents for research purposes and things like that. Um, uh, actually, don't quote me on that because like strike that because <laughs> uh, okay. I'm not edit that out because I'm not 100 percent sure. But like, but there, um, but there, there is a lot of like um, interesting things happen behind the scenes. Well, I I think that um, you know the, the challenge is verification, right? You always have to go back to is it, you know you're talking about hallucinations, which I agree with you. The name should change. I I think one of the biggest challenges though is when you are giving the keys to your kingdom to someone else. You have to trust that that agent is going to do what you hope it's going to do. And anyone who studied economics knows the agent principle problem, you know, that you yourself are always going to have your best interest at heart and AI is an agent. So it's not necessarily knowing exactly what your interests are. And so when we look at auto GPT, for instance, like it generally works. It's amazing. Like you can actually ask it to do complicated tasks. Like uh, a task might be go make me money. And people have shown that it will actually go out, learn how to make money by building online storefronts, start selling and drop shipping. I mean, it's incredible. People have actually made thousands of dollars with a single line of, of text into a agent bot. The problem is, is when it makes mistakes and you don't know when it's going to make a mistake. You don't know where in the process it's going to happen um, because very little in the AI world is actually verified or based on kind of fundamental facts. And so, you know, similar to what we just talked about with enterprise where you know, it's one thing to show an amazing demo, but it's really the edge cases that drive whether it can be used in, in a production environment. I think the same thing is true for agents. Um, you have a real challenge of, um, you know, how good does it have to be to get to where it needs to go? And, you know, we're seeing a ton of companies, I'm looking at the, the venture side, we've seen a ton of companies say in healthcare, right? Um, there's a massive doctor shortage, there's a master, massive nursing shortage post COVID, burnout is really high. Clearly, there's a need for a way for me to text my doctor and get an immediate response. They can't do that because they're in the operating room or an exam room. Um, so an agent would be super helpful. But you know, if uh, an AI is going to give the wrong answer one in 10,000 times or even one in 100,000 times, and you suddenly have deaths and people are taking the wrong drugs or the wrong dosages, um, is that good enough? And uh, my view has actually been similar to autonomous vehicles, where there is a crossover point where... You know, humans also make mistakes and we could probably calculate the difference and start to statistically say, like, look, if you ask a, a tired doctor at the end of their shift this question or AI, <laughs> you know, at some point, the AI is probably more accurate in the same way that a drunk driver uh, is far more dangerous to California roads than Waymo uh, today. Yeah. And so I, I to me, that's the hard part for I think a lot of regulators is like, you know, we've seen this with a lot of the AV uh, controversies in the last you know couple of years. It's really hard to kind of give up the keys and say, you know, statistically, on average, the AI is safer. We just kind of like the idea that there's a human driver in there that we can imprison. You can't really imprison yeah. AI. There's no consequence if there's a mistake. Yeah. And I, th I think a lot of this comes back to like um, with with AI specifically, I there has to be a, a sh mental model shift in the way we uh interpret this as like a tool so computer science classically so there's there's this, this notion of stateful versus stateless in, in computer science where stateful you have like an, an uh, a concept of memory like i can remember the last things that i've done whereas uh, a large language model is, is stateless in that it cannot remember the last things that it did because it's frozen in time um and uh a lot of people have talked about this um as as a as an issue and ways you get around it you can get around it by basically like making sure that every when you send it a prompt saves that information and loads it into the loads it into the next prompt to basically say like okay like the last thing you said was x so make sure you include that in your answer for the next one um and you know i'm sure you've noticed if you send a, a prompt off to gpt and send it a second time you'll get two different responses uh because it is statistics right it is it is like a, a kind of 
uh, grabbing the nearest pieces of information and hoping it puts together something correct. And and it's a it's a hard mental model to shift to when we've spent 30, let's go back to IBM, 30 years, I guess. Uh, <laughs> IBM has been uh, dead for decades. I don't know, yeah. Watson, just say Watson. They uh, love Watson. Yeah, yeah, sure. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, thinking about thinking thinking about this way uh, in like a classic comp sci, uh, comp sci approach, whereas this is like, it's a little, it's a harder paradigm to 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 grasp with existing comp sci methodologies and uh, ways of thinking about this stuff. Sure. Um, you know, I think people will get there eventually. I don't know. It's like statistics, it's uncertainty. Like once people, maybe once people started, anyways, we'll talk about that later. Um, let's close, let's close with some, you know, policy takes. I don't know, Matt, from your view, are there any, are there any, you know, legislation uh, legislative initiatives or investments that you'd be really excited to see or you know pitfalls you'd advise um folks in washington to to avoid as they you know think about their role and and in in ushering along and stewarding this uh this emerging industry was it senator uh schumer that uh gave a presentation uh not too long ago uh he he had this quote which is uh you know if we take the typical path Holding congressional hearings with open statements and each member asking questions five minutes at a time on different issues, we simply won't be able to come up with the right policies. By the time we act, AI will evolve into something new. So we saw this happen with Facebook uh, and the hearings around, you know, social media and stuff like that, and at how it was, it was kind of ridiculous to watch them. And you know, imagine the the challenges of something like that uh, for a tool like Facebook, which is well established. And doing the same things with AI, which on a weekly basis changes. Yeah. Literally a week, literally weekly, there is some new piece of technology or new methodology or new area of interest that emerges that has exactly as much promise as the previous one. So, you know, agents is a good example. Um, uh, that's a recent development, but like we're already moving on to like the next thing. Right. So like we're, we're already exploring areas. Um, there's one area that's interesting called chain of thought. Um, there's another area that's interesting that I've heard about, which is called we're calling I'm calling prompt routing effectively. Right. Um, but it's like by the time something is talked about in a, in an environment like Congress, we've moved on to the next thing like like and there's a lag. And so the, the whatever the classic approach that's being taken for Facebook uh, is is uh, or or some of these other regulations is is going to be like really is going to be really challenging because we are so early in in this development cycle and and you know you look at the iPhone right things were changing on on, on a daily basis and like they got a, you know they got a free pass to do whatever they wanted basically. So I think it's I think it's uh, it, it's gonna have to require something a little bit more nimble. Um, but at the same time, you see a lot of the people that are being called into these discussions are people like Sam Altman, who runs the probably most important AI company or most established AI company in the world right now, who has their own opinions. And it's how do you balance these these opinions from? people that are very smart and like built these companies and like know how these technologies work at a very intricate level, but have an agenda in some fashion or another, whether they realize it or not, right? There's like, there's, there are incentives at play across the board. There are incentives in open source to keep it at open source development. There are incentives in closed source to ensure that there is a way, there are ways to protect them uh, from a, like, you know, literally like a revenue perspective, there are incentives, like all there are competing incentives for, for literally everything. And so it's probably like it's it's going to be probably one of the most challenging um, regulant regulatory problems that we've faced in tech uh, in a very long time. But the the there also has to be a, a extreme level of care taken because you know any 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 regulation is is going to be really complicated and and. Uh, the U.S. is like a very clear leader in AI development right now by by orders of magnitude, right? Um, you have Meta with Llama. Meta is an American company. You have OpenAI with GPT-4. OpenAI is an American company. Um, and so there's there's going to be that that is another competing interest at play here. 
uh, to 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 have to align. And so it's sort of like, how do we how can we move quickly enough to keep up with all these developments uh, while also making sure that we like tread extraordinarily carefully to ensure that these things are developed in a responsible way and we're not falling behind in, in other ways. I think, um, you know, when you come to D.C., everyone always thinks in terms of laws, in terms of rules, in terms of policymaking, um, you know, it's a legal field, right? D.C. is the highest percentage of lawyers of any city in the country. Um, but I, I think given the speed of what's going on in A.I., you know, none of these processes can keep up in time, right? Like A.I. is changing hour by hour, as Matthew knows, <laughs> having to cover all of this and supervise in a way that I don't have to. Um, you know, literally things are changing, uh, you know, multiple times per day. And so, you know, to my mind, you need much more nimble approaches. One is focusing on just culture uh, and having a culture of self-regulation in the industry. So, you know, unlike crypto, which was built around a culture of kind of rebelliousness to the state, trying to fight, you, you know, supremacy of the U.S. dollar, you know, AI is fundamentally a scientific academic discipline. It's, it's fundamental core kernel, if you will, is a culture of do no harm, a culture of I don't want to see my tool be used for evil or for something terrible. I really just want to make something good that works well in the world. And so it's much more receptive to finding approaches to have high safety and trust. Um, you know, one of the interesting things is when you go to an AI conference, like it really is totally aligned between kind of DC and Silicon Valley. There's not a lot of folks who are trying to like blow up the system and fight all this. Um, they don't want their systems to be used for discrimination. They don't want it to be used to, I don't know, find new forms of biological and chemical warfare. Like no one's trying to do that. Um, and so to my mind, uh, public-private partnerships, finding industry consortia that help to self-regulate, um, finding ways that are, are much more nimble that can adapt to how this industry changes quickly and evolves quickly over the next weeks, months, years, um, is far better than trying to come up with some sort of regulatory framework or an agency that comes up with a 90-day window because you know, fundamentally, the policymaking and, and rulemaking processes of D.C., like the actual times you have to give for comments, as an example, um, are actually too long. Like, it just doesn't work. It's it's sort of like, can you imagine if you, what you would actually need is like, OK, here's a rule in the morning. We need comments by five because we need this rule out by tomorrow because this new technology just came out and has implications. Like, it just doesn't work at speed. And so I think much more nimble uh, approaches work because the culture is amenable to it in a way that I think some other industries which are more disruptive and corrosive, uh, we're not. Yeah, and I mean, and, I think it, like especially within that culture too, um, there are a lot of unsolved problems that everyone agrees need to be solved. And like by solving them, we actually further this notion of safe AI, uh, you know, like the black box of like how this, this you know, data is encoded and embedded within these models for when it's pulled out and like why do these models hallucinate? Um, like these are, these are currently unsolved or semi-solved problems that, you know, in solving them or understanding them better makes things easier from a regulatory perspective. And so, you know, they're like, how can we like supercharge that? Like, how can we yeah. put as much, as many resources behind solving these in the first place? Cause everyone agrees they should be solved They're Like, and so, so I think it's sort of like, what can policymakers and what can the government do to like get this going faster? Because that's one way of of doing that um yeah i mean it, it's interesting because matt it's it, i almost feel like there are two buckets of ai sort of like regulatory issues there are ones where like like the solution means more money for everyone and then there are others where the solution means more money for some people and less money for other people making like the ai outputs more legible or like having like yeah. a new data framework that like will open up more um industries to like be comfortable with this like that is a a a like positive something for basically everyone in in the industry you know now if you want to start on the other side if you want to start talking about um you know the regulatory barriers that a lot of that a lot of industries are going to try to put up to not um you know have to change the way they do business or sort of anti-competition issues where um you know maybe folks are you know i'm, I'm sure pretty soon we're going to start to have uh and, and, and senator schumer raised this himself of like you know just how consolidated are we're going to want this to be and you know the 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 US government could put a real thumb on the scale when it comes to open source versus uh closed source on you know what what they're going to buy uh you know f from you know at a simplest level you know what sort of stuff they're going to start implementing in their own systems and more broadly you know what they're going to allow um to to um uh 
um to to go out in the marketplace and you know danny no offense but like the uh the public private uh model of like light touch like let's let industry figure it out will probably play out pretty well for lux capital so um you know uh, it's 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 gonna be really it's gonna be really tricky but i i do think you know coming back to the speech this this idea of him framing uh of of the senator framing it as innovation is the north star and like at the end of the day there are going to be a lot of complicated things and we don't and we're not really sure what's going to happen you know agents one day chain of thought the the next but i think i think starting from the perspective of um you know we cannot be sure what is going to happen but you don't want to kill the golden goose and you don't want to sort of create a sort of regulatory framework, which because you're sort of scared of some of some downsides, which like, you know, all technological change brings, you don't necessarily want to um, sort of close ourselves off to futures where this um, where this technology can be like really uh, impactful and, and improve li- uh, people's lives in a, a you know, really radically, um, you know, amazing set of ways. Yeah, well, I mean, like, if you look at, you know, if you remember some of these Facebook hearings, like Mark Zuckerberg is the first people that person that'll be like, we should be regulated. Like, yes, of course you would say that because it's good for you. You're already like established. You're already entrenched here. Uh, and so so like if you get to like you said, if you get to help help or help write or or guide the rules here, like you 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 get you 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 get a lot of power there. Uh, but, you know, one thing I'll, one thing I'll sort of leave with this is is um you know danny you mentioned this thing about academics right um and how a lot of the people in this industry are coming out of academia you see phds in physics phds in neuroscience phds in comp sci um you know it's like there was a joke i heard one time that was like um no like i you know like i i i love phds in physics they make great they make great data scientists um (laughs) um so um uh but you know the the academic world where where most if not all these projects came into existence um you know i think spark is an example right if i remember correctly and um all, like a lot of these other um open source projects that came into existence they they were born out of academia and academia has been very like maligned as like the place to do cutting edge work and you know google and meta and the rest of these guys position themselves it's like well if you want to have real impact like come work for us so what is there like what is there that can be done to facilitate a lot of this work that's happening in academia that uh where a lot of these projects clearly came out of right a lot of a lot of these a lot of these these very powerful technologies were born in in these environments right and and so like what like what can be done there to better facilitate that instead of just focusing on corporate stuff so there, there's a uh, there's a really great PhD thesis by Jade Lung, which she published um, in 2019, and it sort of like traces the arc of uh, you know really important dual use uh, technologies over the 20th century, and she focuses on on sort of communications as well as satellite um, stuff, and you know this pattern of um, of sort of researchers, you know, obviously the researchers are going to be creating the new technologies, but she writes that, you know, ultimately um, the researchers fade into the backdrop, constrained by their dependence on R&D funding and by the legislative environment, their influences as actors waned. And you you very quickly start to see corporations as well as governments be the ones that are, are, are driving the rules of the road and sort of setting the norms and whatnot. So, you know, we're still at this or very early stages, you know, we talked about we're, we're six months in. And at this moment, you know, you still have like the good vibes of academia and you still have, you know, ideal idealists who are founders who are who are, you know, trying to shape the ways and, and uh, you know, the shape the, the development of this trajectory in the ways that it might, uh, you know, in, in, in sort of in accordance with their beliefs. But uh, uh, governments are more powerful than, um, uh, than, than researchers. And if if AI really hits in the way that some people think it will, these decisions very, you know, ultimately are going to be out of the hands of the of the original inventors, which is, you know, obviously Robert, Robert Oppenheimer is the sort of classic example of, of, of someone who creates something only for it to sort of spin far um, out beyond what he what he envisioned. So savor this moment um, when we still have the AI researchers um, uh, being the ones who are sort of driving and shaping the discussion because the, the window may not be open for for much longer. Yeah, I mean, I think uh, Jonathan Frankel, who's, uh, you know, one of the chief scientists at Mosaic ML, which just got bought by Databricks uh, for $1.3 billion. He was 
at an event I was watching last night. And first thing he said was like, guys, get your derps papers in. Like they're due in seven hours. Uh, where NURPS is like this big, you know, conference where a bunch of academics meet and, and, you know, discuss some like emerging techniques and technologies and, and some of the, some of the cooler cutting edge science. And it's just like, this is, this is one of the people that's like worrying on a technology that just got bought for, you know, 1.3 billion. Right. So, uh, so that, that's, that's where we are right now. And, and, you know, like you said, we'll see where it goes. Uh, Danny, closing thoughts. Okay. I'm here. There's just so much more to talk about. I mean, you could have an okay. entire podcast just, just devoted to AI uh, politics going on today. Uh, you know. You could. We, we, we got to launch AI talk. It doesn't exist yet. But we'll, we'll <laughs> there, wasn't, there wasn't a ton of China in here. Anyways, you know what? If you want to be the founding sponsor of AI talk, which covers AI from a national security and politics more broadly perspective brought to you by Jordan Schneider, reach out. I'm at Jordan and China talk media. Um, Matt, you got a song to take us out on? A song? Yeah. Oh, man. I just listen to, like, lo-fi beats to relax slash study to all day these days. So, uh, like... <laughs> <laughs> all right. Well, we, can, we can work with that. Uh, thanks so much for being a part of China Talk, you two. Jordan, thank thanks. you so much. This is an instrumental Taiwanese track called Confucian Temple. <laughs> 